You know, sometimes communication's an amazing moment, isn't it? Right? Sometimes trying to communicate correctly and do things, and sometimes when we look at the, the book of Revelation and we look at the communication of something that uh, has never been seen before as future, and yet John's trying to relate some things that he is seeing and he's doing it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it gets really interesting to see all the different translational moments that take place within uh, particularly this uh, <laughs> prophetic book, Revelation. And so today, as we look at the Antichrist, folks, I, I got to tell you, there's all kinds of interesting moments here. There's all kinds. You can look at Daniel. You can look at Thessalonians. You can look at 1 John. You can look in Revelation. And it's all over the map in terms of some of the things that people believe about what is being said. And I think we want to try to get it down as close to the reality of what uh, the inspirator of the, of the whole scripture is trying to say, the Holy Spirit, and make sure that we have a literal, figure, uh, not a figurative, but a literal, historical, contextual view of scripture and what actually is being said, and particularly today as we look at the issue of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist is a major figure in world events. I mean, just, <laughs> is, has there been a lot of speculation about who the Antichrist is? I mean, I've even heard Donald Trump is the next Antichrist. Seriously. And I, I remember growing up, Gorbachev, remember him? Remember the mark on the head? And everybody said, oh, that proves that he's the Antichrist. He's got a mark on his head, and he's the Antichrist. And it was kind of like, what? What? I, it's all over the board. And people come up with all kinds of stuff. The guy from the Middle East, this person, maybe the new president of Greece, but now he's no longer the president of Greece. Or maybe this guy from France because he's so young and everybody likes him. And he's, wow, on and on and on and on and on. There's a lot of speculation about who the Antichrist could be, maybe. And uh, there's a lot that the Word of God has to say about this. He is a central figure. Let me just put it this way for you. The Antichrist is a man, there's no question about that, but he is satanically empowered and he will rule over a one world government. He will come against Israel, he will accomplish the abomination of desolation, and ultimately he will be destroyed by the Lord himself. Now think about that. He is a man and he makes decisions about his belief systems like everybody else, but he's satanically empowered. He literally seats himself in the temple, the fourth temple, which is the temple of the tribulation, and he sets himself up as if he is God most high. He is boastful, proud, arrogant. He will rule over this world in a one-world government. We'll see this in chapter 6 with the first seal of the white horse, which is the Antichrist who goes out to conquer. Now, this guy's no joke. He's evil. He's evil. We're going to see that as we walk through this. How do we know that we're in the end times? I think I asked that about eight, nine weeks ago. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, gives us certain signs of our age. And we looked at several of them. Right? We know the, the wars and the rumors of wars, World War I, World War II. We understand Israel becoming a state again. We understand Israel in the Six-Day War taking control of the old city. Those are all things that have been prophesied and have come to pass and that are spoken of by the Lord in the Olivet Discourse as being signs of our age. 
But there's another, and it is about false prophets or false teachers or, in effect, 1 John, antichrists. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 5 says, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Again, it's a sign of our age, of our time, of our season. There are signs that are leading up to the signing of the covenant by the Antichrist with Israel, which when that takes place is immediately the beginning of the seven-year period of time we would call the tribulation or the great tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, etc. It's an amazing moment. We know in our day and age that there is a lot of false teaching We know that many have come and saying they're the Christ. Or there are messianic figures in many different instances, and they are false because they teach or proclaim a false religion. They teach or begin to express something that is not true according to God's truth, according to God's way. In 1 John 2.18 John writes, children, it's the last hour. Now, folks, again, if John is saying at that particular point in time that it's the last hour, how many ticks are left in the clock? It's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And what John is simply saying was when you see false teaching increasing and many Antichrists, meaning false teachers or people who are teaching something that is contrary against the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you know that it's the last hour. How many ticks are left on this clock, I would suggest not many, not many. Why is the Antichrist, this individual, this human being who is empowered by Satan, why is he called the Antichrist? Well, if you look at Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, we get some pictures of this. Anti means against, against. Against the Christ, against the Lord. And in Daniel 11, verses 36 and 37, it says, Then the king will do, and by the way, there, there are some discrepancies as to how people look at this particular passage. Some people believe this is about Antiochus Epiphanes, which took place way before. The problem with that rendering is that some of the things that are said about, and I believe this is about the Antichrist, some of the things that are said about the Antichrist here did not relate to Antiochus Epiphanes. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Boastful, proud, arrogant. Some people think that he's Jewish because of the language that's being used here. He will not show regard for the gods of his forefathers or his fathers. Really, the reality of it is whatever culture he's a part of, which I believe is Roman, and we'll see that in a minute, it's that he is disregarding the heritage that he has religiously. 
The idea that he has no regard for the desire of women is simply that the women in this context are Jewish women who desired in some way, shape, or form to be the moms of the Messiah. And what he's simply saying is that this individual will disregard the one who even the Jewish women long for, which is the Christ. He will disregard the Messiah. He is an antichrist in every sense. He is contrary to God's ways. He is contrary to God's truth. He is evil. And we see in our day and age this proliferation of idea in terms of the messianic. You can see it all over the place. All you got to do is go watch Batman. (laughs) Go watch Superman. Right? I don't have anything against those movies. I personally believe in Batman. I think he's, he's pretty cool. And one of these days, I don't know if in the millennial kingdom we'll even have cars, but I want a Batmobile. I want a Batmobile. <laughs> right? Come on. But you can hear the language that's being used in these particular movies. Masters of our own fate. How many songs speak to that? Masters of our own fate. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Oh, did you now, Frank? (laughs) Right. I was watching, uh, anybody like Wimbledon? I don't get into tennis a whole lot until it hits Wimbledon. And then for whatever it is, go Roger. You know, he's Swiss, I'm Swiss. Something about that happens. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm American Swiss. I'm, you know. So I vote for those who are from Switzerland, and I like Federer, and uh, I hope he wins uh, whatever the 25th, you know, Wimbledon title that he so richly deserves. But I was watching Wimbledon, and and I I was listening to this GMC commercial, and I had to type out the language of this commercial, because I do like four-door trucks. They're pretty amazing uh, creations of modern science. I'm glad you got that, you know, it's good. You're with me, you're tracking, it's good. It says this, how do you want to live? As a decent person? Good husband? Is that it? Good, of course not. King of the hell, better. Top of your game, win. All powerful like a boss. Good Lord, I can tell you that ain't true. <laughs> like a pro, we couldn't agree more. Think about that. All powerful. You buy this four-door wonderful creation of science truck, GMC, professional grade, and then that will reflect who you really are. Top of your game, ruler. Folks, how many... How many commercials can we go through like this? Buy this product, it'll make you a better individual, it'll put you in power, everybody will covet what you want and sin in the process, you know? It's incredible. Think about it. This messianic complex, this idea that we are masters of our own faith, that we are the lords of our universe, is pervading every fabric of our society. You have an iPhone, some of you don't. You are less than. 
<laughs> right? Isn't that the way it is? Right? I mean, come on. It's the idea. It's pervading everything. And folks, it, it pervades the church. It pervades the church. Because the culture, rather than us making a stand so often against the culture, how have we allowed the culture to invade the church? How have we allowed this thinking to invade the way we ought to think biblically about who really is in control and how do we do and all the different factors of it? It's amazing. Hits all of us, folks. Hits all of us. Let me give you several things. First of all, the Antichrist is a world ruler. He's a world ruler. Let me give you a few thoughts on that. First, he's the beast with ten horns. He's the Antichrist, and he's one of the ten horns that uproots the three. He's called the little horn. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, Daniel writes this, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Wow. I mean, you could just dwell on that one for a little while, right? This little horn comes up amongst the ten, which have the idea of the world being divided into ten different sections. Some people have thought it as the European economic community. And I think probably there are people that are speculating about the G20 and all the other different aspects of it. The whole world is going to be divided up into ten. And out of that comes the Antichrist who takes over three and ultimately gets the other seven to give him their power and he rules over the entire earth. He boasts. The eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. It's amazing. Pride is the central sin of everything, folks. Where does the Antichrist come from? Daniel 9.26 Prophecies given, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And watch this language. And the people of the prince who is to come. So we're not talking about the prince. We're talking about the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, speaking of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, speaking of the temple, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, we know who those people are. They are the Romans, because in AD 70, they came in 40 years after the death of Messiah, in effect, and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, the people of the prince who is to come. So the prince is of the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. It's interesting. Fruchtenbaum says it this way. Since the Antichrist must be of the same nationality as the people who destroyed the city and the temple, it is this verse that shows that the Antichrist will be a Gentile of Roman origin. Fascinating. Fascinating. I don't know how to argue with that. He's also called the beast out of the sea. The sea being a picture of humanity. You look at Revelation chapter 13, and you can camp there for a little bit. Revelation chapter 13 has a lot to say about the dragon, Satan, or the Antichrist, as well as the prophet. Revelation 13, 1 says, The dragon stood on the sand 
of the seashore. The dragon is Satan, is Satan, standing on the sand of the seashore, in effect, looking out over humanity. And John records this, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And listen to this, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. This is the Antichrist that the dragon is empowering. He has great authority over the entire earth. When you look at verse 3, the Antichrist has a wound to his head. He recovers and is worshipped by those on the earth. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Evidently, he's going to have a fatal wound. Whether he actually dies and is resurrected or whether it's almost as if he died, we're not exactly sure. The word fatal is used, so it appears that he's actually going to die. And he's resurrected. His fatal wound is healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So he's called the little horn. He's called the beast. He's called the antichrist. He is a political Ruler, He will rule over the nations and all the people of the earth at that particular point in time, other than those who are saved, which we have in other verses where we know that there are those who do not take the mark of the beast, but all the people who do not take the mark of the beast are going to worship this antichrist, this false Christ, this world ruler. So not only is he a world ruler, and not only is politically that the case, but he's also a false religious leader. In verses 2 and 4 of chapter 13, we're told that the dragon, Satan, has given the Antichrist his power, the throne that he sits on, and in a sense, the, the rulership ability, and great authority. The dragon gave him his power in verse 2, the second part of that, and his throne and great authority. In verse 4, it says they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So catch that. They're worshiping the dragon. They're worshiping Satan because Satan has given his authority to the Antichrist, the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who's like the beast? And who's able to wage war with him? In verse 5, he blasphemes God and makes war against the saints. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words. Remember the little horn and the the great boasting. Well, this is something that is true all the way through the descriptions of the Antichrist. Great boasting, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. That's a part of the tribulation. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every Every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Wow. If you look at Daniel 11, as we did in 36 and 37, again, be reminded. He will magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished or that which is decreed will be done. Wow. Monstrous blasphemy. Now, when we talk about that from a religious perspective, we're talking anti-grace. Anti-grace. We're talking anti-salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone. 
That's what we're talking about. We're talking about here's a way for you to get saved. Pick your flavor of the month religiously and just do good enough in order to show that you actually are able to make it. And if that really didn't work, we can take the universalist perspective where everybody's going to get saved in the end. Monstrous blasphemies against Christ, against the Lamb, against the Lord, against his grace, against his salvation, against the sacrifice that he made for us at the cross by the shedding of his blood. Fascinating. Verse 7 reveals the Antichrist will have authority over the nations for obviously a time. It is limited because God is sovereign over this. All will worship him, those who are not saved. In verse 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Wow, this is dire. This is disastrous. This is the end, folks. This is why chapters 4 and 5 are a picture of the throne room of God where the Lamb alone has the ability to take the scroll who went to the cross, shed his blood, and has the right to open up these seals and bring judgment upon this earth. Because he will deal with sin and he will deal with those who are rebellious against him and in effect who are from their hearts antichrists, types of antichrists. When you think of the Antichrist, you think of this false trinity that Satan begins to try to establish. The Antichrist is the second figure of the unholy trinity. If you think of it as the Satan being the dragon, being the false father who has his son, the Antichrist, who's the false Christ, who then has, in effect, the false Holy Spirit, who's the prophet. And you can see that in verses 11 and following of chapter 13 in Revelation. We're not going to take the time to look at that. The point of the matter is there's this false trinity being established. The dragon, Satan, the father, the false father, the second person, which is the Antichrist, the beast, the little horn, which is this man of lawlessness, this man of perdition, man of sin, who's coming in and receiving worship. And then there's the false prophet, which is the false, in effect, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, who is giving all the credit to the Antichrist and causing people to worship the Antichrist as well as the dragon, who is Satan. In the midst of all this, there's a heart of rebellion. Rebellion. There's a spirit of lawlessness. There's deception. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 3 and following. Let me read this for you. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and following. It says, let no one in any way deceive you. Folks, we need to be careful not to be deceived. Because Paul, at this moment, is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. The only way not to be deceived is to get into the Word of God and find out what the Word of God has to say and be taught by the Holy Spirit so that we begin to see things as God sees things to make sure that we are aligned correctly with God's truth. He says, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's the abomination of desolation spoken about in Daniel. 
Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Well, that's a mouthful. We're not going to get all of it today. In a couple weeks, we're going to deal with the rapture and talk about uh, this whole issue of restraining Let's focus in on the Antichrist. He's called the man of lawlessness in this particular translation. You may have a KJV or you may have another translation where it doesn't say lawlessness. It says man of sin or man of perdition. That's probably the better translation, to be honest. He is a man of sin, which clearly lawlessness is sin. Anything that's contrary to God's laws, God's ways is sin. He is anti-law, or he's against the law. And we're not talking about stop signs that we get frustrated about because of where they were located. We're talking about God's ways, God's laws. He's called the lawless one in verse 8. So either way, whether it's the, the son of sin or the son of lawlessness or the man of lawlessness, we know that he is, in verse 8 of this particular passage, called the lawless one. Why? Because he's contrary to God's ways, contrary to God's truth. Son of destruction in verse 3, fascinating on this. Spiros defines the word destruction, and it's a fascinating uh, word to look up and, and see how it's used through the New Testament. But here in this particular passage, Spiros comments on this. He says, it's an allusion to the Antichrist means one determined to remain spiritually lost. Think about that. One determined to remain spiritually lost. This man of lawlessness or this son of destruction is a man who's making a decision determining not to receive the Messiah, not to receive the Christ, not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, for the washing of sin by the blood of the Lamb, but rather is against the Lamb. Now think with me on this. Where does lawlessness come from? Folks, every time we make a decision not to follow the Lamb or submit to the Lamb or walk by faith in the Lamb, if it's prior to becoming a believer, there is a resistance and ultimately there is, we know from Romans, a giving over to the sin that an individual desires because they refuse to receive the salvation which is in Christ and Christ alone. As believers, ought we not be very careful to give in to the desires of the flesh, which ultimately at their root have pride and will end up in lawlessness? That's the point. Now, as we celebrate and remember communion today and the blood of Christ, understand that God has washed us. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And because of what the Lord has done, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And as a result, we don't have to give in 
to our flesh, our sinful flesh, any longer. We can walk with the Lord by his strength, by his grace, because of what he's done for us. We don't have to walk in lawlessness. We can walk in righteousness because of what Christ has done. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ himself becomes our righteousness. What a beautiful truth that is, folks. Think about that. It goes on in verse 4 of this passage. He poses and exalts himself above all the other so-called gods and religions. Think about that. Even to the point that he sits in the temple of God, the fourth temple of the tribulation, displays himself as being God. Here's the abomination of desolation that marks the very middle of the tribulation or the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. Currently, he's being restrained, and again, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Here's the, here's the message in so many ways for us today is here is the working of sin as it begins to deal with human hearts and begins to be carried out that is very similar to the Antichrist. Lawlessness is already at work. The mystery of lawlessness, as Paul tells these Thessalonian believers, is already at work. I mean, do we need to go through the examples of this? We can see this everywhere. And unfortunately, as believers, we tend to like to point the fingers at everybody out there and say, look at this, look at this, and we come up with all our different reasons. But let me pull it down to where we are today. And the question is, what is our attitude towards the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Because ultimately, (laughs) that's what we're talking about. It is an anti-Christ, anti-Lord, anti-willingness to follow, want to do it my way kind of attitude. And whatever the sin may be, the symptom, the root, the root of all these symptoms and all these things taking place is an attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ himself based in lawlessness. Amazing. Well, in Revelation 2010, and obviously verse 8 of this passage, the doom of the Antichrist is sure as the Lord will slay him. In Revelation 2010, it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, the devil being uh, the dragon or Satan, where the beast, meaning the Antichrist, this son of perdition, this man of lawlessness or man of sin, and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Anybody say amen to that? We understand that God is in control, and there are certain things that God will bring about, and that he has brought his truth to bear, and he will not allow it to go on forever. It will have an end. And praise God that we can trust in the sovereignty of the Lord. We don't need to fear, folks. We don't need to fear the Antichrist or or this world system or anything else. We trust the Lord. And we can stand secure in that because we know that the Lamb is worthy and that the Lamb has taken the scroll and the Lamb can open these seven seals and he will bring about justice for this earth. And we can celebrate in that. So the man, the Antichrist, is empowered by Satan 
you know, the interesting thing is how he's been described here, a little horn with blasphemous boasting or a, a, a beast out of the sea of humanity. He's seen by God as a monster. I guarantee you he will not be seen by the world as that. He will be seen by the world as one slick guy. Somebody with personality out the window, right? Somebody that can lead and guide and everybody, th- oh, what a leader this guy is. But in God's eyes, he's a monster because he's against Christ. He's the anti Christ. He speaks blasphemy about what our lamb did at the cross. Satan is the one who empowers the Antichrist. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, we're told this about Satan. By the Lord. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says of himself, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Wow. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. As believers, how should we be walking? Certainly we ought to be walking in the law of love, God's perfect law, rather than walking according to our flesh. In Galatians, Paul makes it very clear, you you can't walk by the Spirit and at the same time walk by the lusts of the flesh. You're either walking by one or the other. What we learn to do as believers is say yes to the Lord. And when we say yes to the Lord, at the very same time we're saying yes to the Lord, there is no way that we can be saying yes to the lusts of the flesh. Understand, each and every one of us has a sin nature. We inherited it because of Adam. Right? So you get the picture of salvation being a fact. When I come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I am a saint. It's a done deal. My justification in Christ, my forgiveness in Christ, my promise of of heaven and to be glorified in that sense is a done deal. It's not based on works. But now I have a life. And the problem is I, I still have the presence of sin. Well, what happened when I got saved? The power of sin got broken. Now I'm learning to deal with this presence of sin. And I'm learning to say yes to the Lord. And by saying yes to the Lord, there's no way at the same time I can be saying yes to my sinful flesh. I am becoming, through the Holy Spirit's power, what God has already declared me to be which one day in glory will be revealed fully and even the presence of sin will be done away with in my life because I'll get a glorified body. I'll get a new body. Praise God for that. We ought to be walking in humility, lowliness, saying yes to the Lord, walking in integrity, walking in purity. This is who we are in Christ. This is who Christ is in us. And this is what Christ can empower us to actually participate with him in the midst of. We ought to be walking in submission to authority, namely the Lord. We ought to be walking saying, yes, Lord, and trusting him no matter what. The law of love. You know, it's interesting. We're no longer under law. We know that from Romans chapter 6, but we are under grace. In Romans chapter 13, 8, 
And there's other passages, but he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Or later on, he says in verse 10 of chapter 13 in Romans, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Antichrist is anti-law, which means he's anti-love, he's anti-humility, he's anti-everything that Jesus Christ stands for and is. And as the people of God, Christ has come to live within us. And as a result, he can empower us through his spirit when we say yes to him to walk in the righteousness that actually he is. Not just that he does, but that he is. How are we walking in that? Or are we giving in to the lust of the flesh? Are we giving in to our fleshly way, which is rooted in pride, which is rooted in sin, which is rooted in lawlessness itself? How are we walking as believers in a way that when people look at us and recognize Christ in us, they give glory to God and they recognize that, oh, truth of the Lord can save, has saved, and is able to transform. What a beautiful truth. The Antichrist is a satanically empowered individual who refuses to receive the Messiah and becomes an antichrist, the antichrist. He's called the little horn. He's called the beast out of the sea. He's a wicked individual who will rule over this world at some point, but he has an end. <laughs> he has an end. And praise God for that. How are we, as the people of God, walking in a way where Christ is being revealed through us.